Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. It's more than just a podcast. It's a source of insights to keep you tapped into all things data-driven so that you can be the most informed technical expert in the virtual room. Listen in weekly to stay educated on the latest trends in backup, recovery, storage, cloud, and security. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and on today's episode of Data Protection Gumbo, I have David Hanemeyer Hansen, DHH, and he is also the creator of Ruby on Rails, co-author and, well, co-owner and CTO of 37 Signals, including Basecamp and Hay, New York Times best-selling author of Rework, and it doesn't have to be crazy at work and also remote. Le Mans class-winning racing driver, antitrust advocate, investor in Danish startups, frequent podcast guest, and a family man. So, uh, DHH, welcome to the gumbo. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. So let's kind of start off a little bit. And primarily, I wanted to... Uh, I saw your 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 post, your your blog post that you wrote, and uh, one of my colleagues or one of my connections on LinkedIn shared it. And honestly, I, I had no idea who you were, okay, until I saw that post and I started reading it, all of the different comments, and it was the one around why you're leaving the cloud. You mentioned that the savings promised in reduced complexity never materialized. So the first question I have for you, I guess, is how do you quantify the intangible costs be, before making the decision to leave the cloud? These complexity costs for me are very simple. Are we able to run our services, Basecamp and Hay, with a smaller team because we're in the cloud than we were when we were on-prem with our own hardware? And the answer is just no. And this is an answer I've gotten validated talking to plenty of other companies in our industry who are at around the same similar size as us. Were you able to shrink your operations team by moving to the cloud? That really is, to me, the crux of the issue. Is there so much more productivity in the cloud that you can do the same you were doing before, but with fewer people? And the answer has been a uniform no, absolutely not. And that really, to me, just puts it at a point. We don't need to uh, do any more fine-grained calculation. If I can't run the services that we have with a few people less on the team than we had before, then where are the savings? What complexity are we compressing by running in the cloud? Because I surely know that we're not compressing our bills. The bills actually totally balloon. Um, you're renting servers, after all. You're not buying them, and you have to pay someone else for that privilege. Now. That doesn't mean that there aren't use cases in the cloud where it just totally makes sense on its face. I point out two in the blog post. One is when you're so early in the process that you don't have an operations team, you don't have a lot of load, you can get by with platforms as a service and use some of these things like Render or Roku because you're just not that big yet. I, I can see the appeal there, even though we started back in the day with Basecamp 2004. We were just on a shared server. That also ran without a dedicated team. So uh, anyway, I can, see, I can see some of the appeal, and then I can certainly see the appeal for the original use case for the cloud. Why did AWS get started in the first place? Because Amazon had to have enough capacity to deal with Black Friday 
and they didn't need that capacity for the rest of the year. So it made sense that they had all this excess capacity due to the fact that they have these extreme peak loads that they had to deal with. Why not sell that? If you're a company like that, if you have a Black Friday in your business where everything just goes up 100x, I think the cloud makes a lot of sense. Now, still, does the cloud make sense for your baseline load? Maybe not, but it probably does make sense for your peak load. But we're not that kind of company. We never were. We don't have those kinds of wild spikes. Basecamp, it's a project management tool that tons of businesses use, but they use it in very consistent ways. They're not these huge swings up and down. The same with, hey, the people who pay us to have their email on hey.com, they check their email every day. It's not like they check their email 10 times as much on Black Friday. So we don't have the swings, and therefore we're paying for a kind of protection, a kind of insurance against events that just aren't relevant for us the vast majority of the time. I love the response, and I, <laughs> I've i heard the same thing as well around the, the peak workloads, et cetera. And you know, one, one thing that I was thinking about is just the astronomical number of services that AWS has to offer. I mean, I lost count, hundreds, maybe even thousands of different services, right? And uh, I, th I think you mentioned that you were actually using their search service and also the database service as well. But what, what about like, how do you get that innovation back? Like if you're completely out of the public cloud, then like, I guess, wh where would you get that, in that innovation from if you're, if you're looking to be more innovative? Well, first, I think you should ask, what kind of problems do you have? Do those problems require, necessitate, or even benefit from, quote, unquote, innovation? I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of churn in innovation where we just use different boxes to put the same shit into. Mm -hmm. And that kind of innovation, I don't really have patience for. I don't have any need for it. Um, and I think that's where... Some companies, they run astray. They get so excited about the new thing, the new service. They don't really question, like, is this something we need? Yeah. Um, is that really going to benefit our business? Our business, as the vast majority of web-based businesses, are essentially forms submitting to a database. I mean, there are all sorts of fancy ways we can set that up and design that and so forth. But the vast majority of services on the Internet that are part of systems sold to enterprises. They're forms submitting to databases, presenting that data in novel, interesting ways. Do you need a lot of services for that? Mm, I don't think so. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some benefits. RDS, for example, Amazon's database service that we use, do have some niceties that we have to replicate in some form or even forgo if we go back to running our own machines. But that's the other thing. The innovation, if you will, that's been happening in the cloud has not been happening exclusively in the cloud. These are core innovations on the software level that if you run your own servers, you can also run those things as well. You can also run those innovations. We're not sort of looking at Stone Age versus Space Age, right? If you go back to running your own hardware, first of all, running your own hardware does not entail that you are physically, personally, as your own company, running the wires that you're building out data centers no you don't you just you rent some space in a cabinet on a contract that comes with power and bandwidth and then that data center will have some nice white glove uh, folks who can pluck in the wires so you can still do everything remotely it can still be cloud-ish in the sense that you put in a request for computing services usually there's a bit of a longer time lag of course that's what's so nice about the cloud 
you want to spend 500 bucks an hour on a beefy database server, boom, you snap your fingers, five minutes later, that's provisioned. That takes a little longer on-prem. But again, how much would you pay for that privilege? Do you have load where you need a beefy uh, database server with the snap of the finger in five minutes? Okay, you're going to pay through the nose for that privilege. If you could wait a week or two for the box to arrive from Dell and someone to unwrap it, eh, you can save, save a lot of money. But still, RDS and these other services, how we provision VMs, how we deal with images, all of that core technology is accessible and usable, even if you run your own hardware. I, I agree with that. And uh, it's it's just amazing, you know, how many new services I see pop up. And it's like, wow, you, you really have to have some super smart uh, subject matter experts and engineers on site, you know, just kind of looking to be more proactive because we know IT, you know, has been reactive, you know, putting out fires, et cetera, especially when individuals were running all of their workloads on prem in the data center. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of how thinly does it need to be sliced. And part of this is that there are a handful of companies as large as Amazon that need to slice the onion very thinly because they're operating an absolute enormous scale. And even slight uh, optimizations at the very edge is meaningful to them. If you're running that kind of multi-billion dollar company with tens of thousands of employees, okay, fair enough. You need some specialized tools. The mistake I see is that small to medium to even large-sized companies delude themselves into thinking they're Amazon or that they're Netflix or that they're Google or that they're Facebook or they're the, any of these other companies that operate at an incomparable scale. It's kind of like this um, illustration where people go, like, here's how many rice a million rices, right? And then they show, here's how many rice a billion rices, most people don't actually have the conception in their head to look at the difference between a million rice um, pieces and, and a billion. And it's the same thing with services. These internet scale services operate at an unfathomable scale that almost no, no one else can even comprehend. And, but yet still, they, they're deluded or even sucked into thinking, we need the same tools. We need the same flexibility. We need the same very thinly sliced onion, because we're also kind of that, right? No, you're not. You're just not. You can get by with so much less complexity, with such a coarser sliced onion, and that's just so much easier to deal with. So instead of trying to chase that level of innovation, if you will, chase the, what do we need? What do we need? And the answer is often incredibly basic. It's Often, you need a SQL database. We understand those very well. We've been operating them for 40 years. Um, they're really good. They're really fast. And you can get a lot of SQL database on a single box right, running it right. in your own data center. Well, awesome. I appreciate you clearing that up. And you know, I want to get behind, I guess, the thought process of, you know, before you made this decision, maybe, you know, what, what's the formula for a listener? someone who wants to stop spending money with cloud resources and maybe start reinvesting or investing in data center infrastructure? So for me, the first thing I had to get out was the ideological spellbind. Mm. I had bought in to the hype of the cloud. I'm not afraid to admit that. I totally yeah, bought as into we it. All did. As yeah, we, we all did. As we all did, right? Like I really mm -hmm. found it appealing to think about it in the parallel of the power plant. Not everyone is running their own power plant. Why would you run your own power plant? Is this a right. unique competitive advantage that you have to generate your own power? And I went, no, it's not. Maybe someone else should just do that. That was the wrong parallel. 
The right mm-hmm. parallel was, do you rent or do you own your dish, do you own dishwasher? <laughs> Renting a dishwasher is pretty expensive if you need that damn dishwasher for five, 10 years. Yeah. You will be paying that back five, 10 times over right. because someone is making money on that rent to you, right? Now, again, if you're just in the apartment for three months, does it make sense to buy a custom dishwasher just for yourself? No, it does not. You should totally rent it, right? But we're the kind of business, and many businesses are, that have a longer time horizon than the next three months, that the premium we pay for the flexibility of the cloud is not justified by the business fundamentals that we live with. And we should instead look at it, what is it going to cost us to operate, say, this database for the next three to five years? Then just do the math. What's the rent? What's the, um, what's the buy? Do we have the, the capital to do the buy? Can we contrast that to, to the rental fees? When we started running these numbers, I got queasy mm, yeah, because okay. some of these numbers were just astronomical, where in sometimes a matter of months, you could pay off a machine mm-hmm. that, that you, were, you were renting, right? Like that if you did the comparison, you're like, okay, for 10 months worth of rent, we could buy the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you don't always get it with the exactly the same bells and whistles, especially when it comes to services like RDS and so forth. But we had already clarified that we weren't saving massively on the complexity. We were not able to run the cloud with way fewer people. Okay. So the math became much clearer in that regard where we're like, okay, how much is it to rent? How much is it to buy? And you just go like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. How much are we spending on rent? Um, I mean, for us, these are real numbers. We spend about $3 million a year mm-hmm. on cloud services. Wow. That's a lot of yeah, money. That is. Like, how much hardware do you think you can shop at Dell.com for $3 million? Holy shit. You can buy a, a, a container ship worth of equipment yeah. and for $3 a, and million. And probably add a Porsche or something right? on that, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the other factor, which is some of this is accounting shenanigans that the cloud benefit from the accounting shenanigans that is moving things between the OPEX, the operational expenses, and the CAPEX, the capital expenses buckets. And some businesses like to have more operational expenditures than capital expenditures because it improves some financial ratings that look good on investor sheets or whatever. But we're not that. At our company, my partners and I, we get to keep the money that's left over at the end of the year. And you know what? I'd rather keep more of it. So are you a fan of hybrid IT, maybe, you know, like where an organization provides and they, they manage, you know, some of the IT resources in-house and they also use some cloud-based services as well? Are you a fan of that or you just say no? I think we're certainly going to be in that situation for quite a long time to come. Okay. Um, we have a, a vision to eventually be fully off cloud, but something like uh, Amazon's S3 service, mm-hmm. that'll be the last one we turn off. Okay. Um, so for quite a while forward, we will, for example, still be using S3, even as we pull more and more stuff back from the cloud, right. because that is one of those services that are, actually is fairly competitively priced. Mm-hmm. Things change, and sometimes things, when you run a total cost of ownership analysis one year, you go like, okay, S3 looks good. But then you don't factor in that S3 is not going to hand over all the savings that will should have accrued to you over the next few years as prices massively drop on the cost of storage. But still, when we do all the comparisons, something like S3 is where I'm least offended about the builds because I know how much it would cost us to build that out. And I know that the margins aren't right. as bananas as they are in some of these other services like RDS. So we will be a hybrid cloud 
operation for a long time. I think it's fine. I mean, run the analysis. Yeah. What are you paying, mm -hmm. for example, to, to run something like an S3 setup? We have petabytes of data in our business. It's not that easy versus what does it cost you to rent that super beefy database server that you could just buy directly from Dell.com and run with not that much difficulty? Pick and choose, but run the math. Run the math and do not price in any huge savings on complexity, thinking that you're going to make it up by needing far fewer staff to be able to operate this stuff. It very rarely pans out that way. Yeah, and I think it's smart to you know have have an hybrid approach where you know you 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 have some things right, some applications, some workloads that are completely geared for the cloud. And then you have some stuff that's on-prem that you're running and, and you're maintaining as well. So the future definitely is, you know, a mix. It's hybrid. So not completely ruling out one and not com completely ruling out the other and just kind of taking, you know, a look at your own inventory of, you know, what type of applications you're running, et cetera, and what type of business that you're in. So uh, I also want to go back to the blog. You, you also mentioned that, um, that it, it isn't just about the cost. And... It's also about what kind of internet that we want to operate in the future. So I'm, I'm curious on that. What, what kind of internet are you speaking of, David? What's your, what's your outlook on? Where are we headed in the future with the internet? We're fast headed towards an internet that's essentially uh, controlled by five companies because they mm -hmm. run all the servers. They mm -hmm. run the big clouds. Um, the cloud space is dominated by barely even five, really three yeah, right, large right. players. It's uh, Amazon, it's Google, and it's Microsoft. I think the last slide I saw was 80 plus percent market share of cloud or something like that. So having three companies that if the cloud hype train continues as mm -hmm. it's been running for a few years, eventually end up running the vast majority of the internet, that's a really bad internet. It's a really um, unresilient internet. And I mean, I've been on both the Google Cloud and we've been on the Amazon Cloud, and we've seen what happens when like Amazon's US East one region, the original region, the one that has the most load, when that goes down, seemingly half the internet goes offline because some service or another that someone is using runs in that data center. And when that's offline, all this other stuff goes offline too. And you just look at like, hey, the original reason DARPA commissioned the internet was to have a communication platform that was resilient if an entire city disappeared off the map, right? That was the, the beauty of this design, that we had a highly resilient, fully decentralized uh, networking system that was resilient to any individual data center going out and on. And we're regressing on that. And I find that tragic, both from a commercial perspective, that we end up with these hyper companies that are going to have far too much power in a monopoly sense. We already see that with um, cell phones. It's Google, it's Apple, and they know it. They have all the power in the world that can extort um, businesses to pay 30% of their revenues as a cut to be able to use these platforms because there is no choice. If you want to be a business today, you want to have an app, what are you going to do? Invent your own damn phone? No, right? And we are a little bit in that early phase with cloud where if we just let thing go, things go on the trajectory it's on, we're eventually going to end up just being customers of three different companies to run the internet. We're going to have no purchasing power we're going to have no bargaining power, and we're going to have very low resiliency on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I think, why are we doing that? First of all, yeah. we're coming from an internet that not just came of age, but came of success on a 
contrary model, on a decentralized model where hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of companies ran servers for millions of companies more. And that provided the diversity in, in the economic space. It provided diversity of implementation. It lived up to the fundamental premise of the internet. And I'm someone who's been working on the internet since the early 90s. I have a great <laughs> affiliation to the internet. I owe my career to the internet. I owe my business to the internet. So there's also a little bit of like, just don't just ask what the internet can do for you, ask what you can do for the internet. And one of the things is not putting all or all our eggs in the baskets of three large companies. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it, it's crazy how three large, well, three companies have managed to monopolize the industry. And, you know, it's smart on their part, but it's, um, I guess they were at the right place at the right time and they um, had the right relationships and the right investors to keep piling money in. And that's a, that's a whole nother story with the, the macroeconomic trends that we're dealing with and inflation and all the other things that are out there right now. But you, you mentioned S, S3 um, as still kind of a, a great option to you know, store data. As far as being or running your systems back on premises, what are some of the maybe best practices or insights around kind of looking for those on-premises storage companies as well and kind of vetting? Because there are also some big guys out there as well. There are maybe four or five different large storage companies. I used to work for uh, EMC back in the day, which was acquired by Dell. And now you have still a handful of storage companies out there as well. Are, are you... Are you working with any of those companies? And do you have, I guess, maybe a recommendation around trying to choose, pick and choose, you know, what you're looking for, who has the best? Yeah. So before we went to S3, we went through three of them. Isilon, I remember, was one of them. Mm -hmm. I'm forgetting what the... And the problem with these enterprise storage companies is that um, it's kind of like a timer starts as soon as they're founded. And five years oh, yeah. after, yep. mm -hmm. that timer goes off and they have to get acquired. And usually when mm -hmm. they get acquired by someone else, they turn to, to be frank, shit. Mm -hmm. They turn really bad, right? The service drops off. Uh, the prices get hiked to astronomical levels. So I am very skeptical of putting my eggs back in one of those enterprise storage company baskets again. Uh, when we start looking at this, I am far more likely to look at something open source that we can run directly on our own um, on our own hardware. Uh, some of, a lot of these things have gotten just a lot easier to deal with. The hardware itself has gotten commoditized in a way that wasn't true yeah. in, in the past. The, the price of storage has dropped tremendously since we were using Isilon back in the day before moving to S3. So, yeah, I, I don't have a clear recommendation here because I've actually been burned quite mm -hmm. a few mm -hmm. times by these companies as they have a compelling product. But that product doesn't stay independent. It doesn't stay innovative for that long. Then it gets bought by an EMC or something else. Mm -hmm. And what happens? The next year, the support contract just doubles or triples or quadruples. And you just go like, eh, don't want that. In fact, in part, that was one of the arguments for why we should use okay. S3 in the first place. How do we get out from underneath these yeah. enterprise storage companies so that we're not captive to them? This is the problem with large amounts of data is there is mm -hmm. absolutely mm -hmm. a lock-in factor. When you're dealing with petabytes or more, it's not that easy to move it around. Now, this, the cloud companies know this as well. This is why they make it free to put 
data into the cloud and then charges you through the nose mm -hmm. to get it back out. So we still have some work to do to figure that out, but I think that the advances in hardware and storage and the prices associated with them alongside the uh, maturation of open source software to deal with some of these things, uh, that's where we're going to be headed. Good deal. And uh, you, you mentioned some of the advances and, and also, uh, David, maybe one or two more questions before we begin to wrap up. Um, just looking into the future and also where technology is headed today, how, how do you view artificial intelligence and machine learning and, you know, kind of where it's being used today and also where it's headed in the future? I think it's probably the most interesting part of the technology space right now. If you had asked me even just earlier this year, I would probably give you a very different answer than I do today. The first time you see something like stable diffusion or any of these other AI-based rendering models, it looks like magic in the most beautiful, awesome way where you're like, this is technology so advanced as to be indistinguishable from magic. So I'm really excited about this, but I'm also a novice in that space. It's not something that we need for our business. In fact, I had been highly skeptical and remain highly skeptical about all these um, business companies slapping the label of AI on their product, when in reality, it's neither intelligent nor good. So I have a great degree of skepticism for AI in, in general, but also a tremendous amount of respect on, on what's happening right now, especially with stable diffusion and that other stuff. So it's really hard to predict where this is, this is going to go, especially because it seems like the space I'm in with project management and, and even with email handling, you'd think that Google, one of the foremost AI companies in the world, would have cracked the nut on identifying what a spam message is by now. They've literally had 20 years of experience and they have all the resources in the world. It's still a hard problem. So this is one of those areas where, where for us at Hey.com, we double down on HI human intelligence, that if humans are remarkably good at spotting what a spam message is. Like most people can actually do it. AI still hasn't caught up, which is just a fascinating distinguishing there that like AI can beat the, the best chess master in the world, but still can't identify a piece of spam. Isn't that fascinating? So I think it's, it's one of those spaces to watch. It's one of those things where I'm happy that we actually have some of these big companies to provide some of the breakthroughs that will then trickle down. And then once it gets commoditized and really understood, we can pick it up for a penny. And uh, you, you mentioned HI. I, I love that human intelligence. And, you know, one thing that, that ran in my mind was, okay, ransomware is out there and people are clicking on links, et cetera. And it's like, we still need to educate individuals around, you know, what to click on, what not to click on. And, you know, they almost had me um, a few weeks ago. They, they sent me a text message about my bank. And is, is this your transaction? Hit Y or no. I hit no. And then I got a phone call and the guy started asking me questions. And he finally got to a point where he was like, well, it came from this IP address. And I'm like, hold on. Why would the bank be telling me what IP address right. it came from? Then he asked me for my, my, my username. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not comfortable here. I'm going to let you go. I called the bank. It was the same phone number. So they spoofed Ooh, man. Yes. the phone number, called the bank, and the bank was like, no, not us. we don't see that transaction. That's not us. But we've been hearing right. that this is happening, and they're getting better yes. because the bad guys, you know, they have lots of funding, you yes. know, now using cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, et cetera. And I think they just busted a guy in Georgia 
um, here that had like a large pile of, of cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin money or something. And it, it's it's just crazy. But one final question before I let you go. It's it's just a personal question here. What What's on uh, your nightstand? What are you reading? Um, right now I'm reading Thomas Sowell, Knowledge and Decisions, which okay. is his um, fundamental book on, on how we distribute uh, the power to make decisions. Really fascinating book. Awesome, awesome. I was just uh, last night listening to the audio book of Patrick Bet Davis, I think. Um Mm-hmm. Now the book escapes me, but oh, something about like the, your next five decisions or something, your next five moves. Yes. Um, he draws the analogy right. of a chess master, how the greatest ones can look 10, 11, 12 steps ahead. And it's kind of phenomenal, right? And it's like, wow, you know, let me see what what this has and, you know, how I can kind of gain some insight from this book. But Thank you so much for appearing on Data Protection Gumbo, uh, David. And is there a way that you would like individuals to maybe reach out to you if, if um, need be, maybe on LinkedIn, Twitter, or any other social media? Yeah, um, I have links to everything, all my books, my software, and my socials on dhh.dk. Okay, got it. Very concise and, you know, one location. I, I like that. Yes. All right. Well, uh, thank you again for being a guest. And until next time, uh, we'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week week.